Do you want your life to honor God? Does it matter to you that your life in this world brings glory to Jesus Christ? That, that you shine as light in the midst of the darkness of this world and, and so help others see and worship your Father who is in heaven? I assume that for most of us, of course, we would give a hearty yes. That's what we want. We want others to, to see Jesus Christ through us. We want our lives to honor God. Perhaps there's some in this room uh, that, that would not so quickly answer yes. Perhaps some that may even listen to the recording of this sermon. And uh, maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. But I will tell you this morning, I'll make a, a not so bold prediction. I'll give you a sure bet that you will honor Jesus Christ one day, whether you believe in him or not, uh, whether you trust in him as savior or not, whether you will spend eternity in heaven or in hell or not, um, you, will, you will recognize Jesus one day as the King of kings and Lord of lords and bow before him, render homage to him. Everyone, all people, will one day recognize Jesus for who he is bow before his supreme majesty, overcome by his almighty power. But to all of you who do desire to honor God with your lives, as our study in the book of Philippians has put it, who, uh, who want to let our manner of life, our conduct, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, to all of you who hear that and say, yes, that's what I want my life to look like, that's what I want, well, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? How, how do we go about making sure that our lives are honoring to the Lord? If that's what we really want, well, what we need to do is we need to understand what kind of living brings glory to God, what kind of living honors the Lord. And that's why we study the Bible. That's why we read God's Word. That's why we, we study a book like Philippians. Because here, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is, is doing. He's, he's writing under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Philippian church. And, and this morning, the very section that we're studying of the book of Philippians, we find ourselves in a, in a section that describes this very conduct, this very manner of living that brings glory to God, this manner of living that is worthy of, of the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me this morning to Philippians 2. And you can find this on page 921 if you're using the Pew Bible this morning. Page 921. Philippians chapter 2. Last week, we considered that this conduct, this, this manner of living that honors the Lord, it looks like unity in the truth. So we thought a little bit about what that means, unity in the truth, and how we maintain that unity through humility. You know, not, not being selfishly ambitious. Rather, 
seeking the, the good of others, counting them more significant than ourselves. The, the Holy Spirit has given a series of commands here at the beginning of Philippians 2 that, that call us to this unity and, and mark the path of humility very clearly so we can know what it looks like to honor God in our lives together, especially as a church. And now to illustrate these commands with a living, moving example, he gives us the very example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's own humility is to describe us in our relationships with one another so that, so that people can see us in our life together as a Emmanuel Baptist church. And what we want them to see is, is Jesus. We want them to see the love of Christ, the humility of Christ in our relationships with one another as fellow Christians. But the example of Christ ought also to describe us, you know, in our marriages, in our, in our other friendships and relationships. You know, this is primarily speaking to us as church members, as fellow Christians, but there are, there are applications of what we're going to be thinking about this morning that apply to all of our relationships. We want, we want Christ to be seen in our lives and the way we treat others in all of our relationships as parents, as co-workers, as friends, may Christ's example define us. So we'll be focusing this morning on the example of Christ uh, from verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2. But to remind us of the, the context, the commands to humility that Jesus is exemplifying, let's go ahead and, and begin reading uh, starting at verse 1 of chapter 2. So if you found your place, I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. So Christians, you who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, what should we strive for if we want our lives to honor him? Well, humility, as verses 3 and 4 have, have shown, thus preserving our relationships and our unity in Christ, that was verse 2, 
And what does it look like to be humble? Well, look to Jesus. Verses 5 through 11. Verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we're being called to a, a way of thinking, a certain mindset that will result in putting others before ourselves, in seeking the interests of others, setting aside selfish ambition and conceit, not grudgingly, as we considered last week, not with that resentful spirit that goes through the motions of serving others, but with a bitter spirit that says, I shouldn't have to do this. Not with that, that martyr mentality that exalts itself more and more the more it serves others, saying, saying, thinking to itself, how good and, and noble I am for making such great sacrifices for such people, and thereby disobeying the call to count others more significant than yourself, but rather to serve those around us joyfully, to seek their interests gladly, as if all that we could do for them is, is but little, just a small thing compared to the great honor that we should like to, to, to show them, the great service that we should like to serve them with. Those, who, those whom we count as more worthy than ourselves, more significant than ourselves. So we're, we're, we're after a, a joyful, sacrificial servitude, a voluntary, joyful, sacrificial servitude. And look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who actually was and is infinitely more worthy than us, infinitely more significant than us, who despite that, he willingly served us and sought our best interests to the point of dying for us. He who is infinitely more worthy than us as so willingly served us, if, if this is what God has done for us, how low he was willing to go for us, how much more should we be willing to serve those who are our equals, our fellow human beings? That's how this passage is, is working. It's, a, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If this is what Christ has done, how much more ought we to serve one another? So we're going to consider this morning the, the greater, the unmatched, sacrificial servitude of Christ to us and, and to have his mind among ourselves, gratefully serving one another in the far lesser and smaller ways in which we're able. So that's kind of the, the main idea of this passage this morning. If, if you want to think, like, what's the, the main point of these verses? It's really this. Live worthy of the gospel by following Christ's example of sacrificial servitude. So Christians, you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, live in a manner worthy of the gospel by following Christ's example of sacrificial servitude. In order for us to see Christ clearly in this passage, we're going to look at his example as it's presented to us. We're, we'll consider, first of all, Christ's supreme dignity. And secondly, Christ's active humiliation. And thirdly, Christ's resulting exaltation. His supreme dignity, his active humiliation, his resulting exaltation. So first of all this morning, let's consider 
Christ's supreme dignity. Verse 6, Christ's supreme dignity. Oxford Languages defines dignity as, as, quote, the state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. So the state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. In order to appreciate the amazing depths to which Christ plunged, to see how low he really went, we need to first get an idea of the heights of dignity from which he came down, from which he lowered himself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, though he was in the form of God, in the Greek, uh, morphe theu, what does it mean that Christ Jesus was in the form of God, in the form of God? It, it simply means that Christ Jesus was deity. He was God. Just as when it says in verse 7 that Christ emptied himself, taking the morphe, the, the form, same Greek word, of a servant, it simply means that Christ Jesus, he, he became a servant. Paul is using the, the same word in this context, close together, uh, corresponding clearly with one another. Christ, in the form of God, took the form of a servant. So this doesn't mean that Christ simply appeared to be God, as if there's some kind of illusion, and then he kind of appeared to be a servant. No, he, he was God, and he truly did become a servant. That's the way these, these words are being used here. There's not some kind of deception going on here. That would, that would contradict other scriptures and it would, it would undermine Paul's entire purpose in using this example. Paul is not trying to show us that Christ merely appeared to serve others, but that he really did serve others, though he really was and is the eternal God. So what is Christ's dignity? Christ's dignity was his deity. Christ's dignity was his deity, though he was in the form of God. His worth was the worth of the Most High God, by whom and for whom all things were created and exist. The one before whom the angelic seraphim in the temple of heaven have to hide their faces to hide themselves from the magnificent glory of God that's brighter than the brightest sun, that makes the brightest star in the universe look like a dimly smoldering coal as the campfire is going out. The one before whom the, the seraphim proclaim constantly, holy, holy, holy. The one who named every star that we have ever seen with our most powerful telescopes, and who has numbered and named every star that we will never see. The one who exists eternally in a dimension that we can barely comprehend. Eternity, who created time. The evening and the morning were the first day. Why? Because God said so. The one who dwells in unapproachable light and yet who is present everywhere. There is no place that we can go and hide ourselves from God. Whether at the bottom of the Mariana Trench 
the deepest part of the ocean or the reaches of, of outer space or hell itself. Nowhere can we escape from God's sight. The one who upholds the universe, every single subatomic particle and atom and every star and galaxy, moment by moment, continues to exist because Jesus says so. Your heart will beat as long as he says so. And not one beat less, not one beat more. The one who took matter, the, the dust of the ground, from one of the planets that he'd spoken into being, and he made the first humans and breathed into them the very breath of life, giving us awareness of our surroundings, eyes to behold his, his creation, ability to react to our surroundings, undying souls that will live forever in heaven or in hell. No sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's permission. And yet he is he's so great that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And the empires and the nations of this world, China, Russia, Britain, America, they're like dust on the scale before him, weightless as nothing. One breath and they're scattered into oblivion. The most powerful weapons, nuclear arsenals, vast armies, they're nothing to God. They're like a few specks of dust, like microorganisms swimming around on a slide under a microscope. If he wills, he can dispose of them all in an instant. The dictator of China, Xi Jinping, he can't sit up in bed unless God graciously causes his muscles to work this morning. George Soros can't chew his breakfast and his body can't digest its food unless God mercifully allows his body to function and his jaws to move. All the collected scientific knowledge and technology that has ever been discovered and ever will be discovered throughout all the ages of history is to God like a, a first grade reader. Who says to the Atlantic Ocean and to the Pacific Ocean, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed? Who raised and elevated ground from the depths of those waters at the beginning of time, the dry ground upon which herds of buffalo would roam and crops would be grown and civilizations would rise and kings would reign upon which Adam would be created and would defy his maker and join in Satan's rebellion and upon which God's own son would be crucified by Adam's offspring so that those who believe would be saved. Who will judge the earth on the day that he is appointed? To whom will everyone give an account and be sentenced? Whether humans or angels or devils, God, Yahweh, the Almighty, the creator and sustainer of all things, 
This is the dignity of Christ Jesus. This is his worth. And yet, though he was in the form of God, verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto for advantage, but emptied himself. So he, he emptied himself, verse 7 says, and, and how? What, what does this mean? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, quite simply, he emptied himself by taking something to himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Christ, the the eternal God, taking to himself a human body, that was a great act of humiliation. This brings us secondly to Christ's active humiliation. We've considered Christ's supreme dignity. Now, secondly, let's think about Christ's active humiliation in verses six through eight. His active, his willing, his voluntary humiliation. The language here is active. All these verbs in these verses are, uh, Christ is emptying himself. He's taking the form of a servant. These things aren't being done to Christ. He's not being... Uh, humbled, he's humbling himself. He's not being overpowered. Who can, who can overpower the Almighty? Christ did these things of his own free will. We see that the, the one worthy to be served took the form of a servant or a slave, as it could be more literally translated. Uh, God the Son, The second person of the Trinity emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, we must not uh, misunderstand this. It's not as though though the second person of the Trinity, God the Eternal Son, ceased to be God. That's not what's going on here. Uh, But God, while remaining the same, added to his perfect divine nature a weak, mortal creature body, a human nature, subject to all the weaknesses and limitations of a human body and mind. This is what uh, the the church has taught down through the centuries. In the words of John Chrysostom, a Mediterranean pastor from the 300s, he explains it this way. He says, for lest when you hear that he emptied himself, you should think that some change and degeneracy and loss is here. He says that whilst he remained what he was, he took that which he was not. Being made flesh, he remained God. So he took to himself a a human body while not ceasing to be the eternal God. The one worthy to be served became a slave taking the form of those beings which were created to serve God. Jesus said in Mark 10, 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And throughout Jesus' life, what do we see him doing? Was he sitting in in palaces surrounded by gold and purple? 
and vast legions of armies paying tribute to him. What was Jesus doing during his lifetime? He was, he was touching lepers with their oozing, decaying flesh to heal them. He was staying up late and losing sleep so that he could lay his hands on all manner of sick and demon-possessed people and healing them. He taught those who tried to throw him off a cliff because he exposed their sin. The slave of mankind didn't have a soft bed to rest his head on at the end of his hard day's work. When his body dragged with weariness and his voice cracked with fatigue, as others went away joyful and healed and went to lay on their soft beds, he gratefully and peacefully laid his head on the ground under the starry sky. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. While his disciples argued about who would be greatest, he, who was their God, did the task of the lowest household slave by washing their dirty feet, even Judas' feet. The one worthy to be served voluntarily took on servitude. He became a slave. The creator took on the created form of his fallen creature. As, as we've mentioned, being born in the likeness of men, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And though he was a true human being like us, he was not like us in every way. For though Jesus' body was subjected to the curse of sin, to things like fatigue and pain and death that didn't happen to human bodies before sin, Jesus himself was sinless. He was sinless. He was a, a true human being, but not like the rest of us in that way. The creator took on the created form of his fallen creature to suffer the consequences of our disobedience, though he never disobeyed. The lawgiver of the universe, who not only created the laws of gravity, but also is the standard of righteousness that determines what is right and wrong. The lawgiver became obedient. We see in verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Kids, um, I know sometimes it's hard for you to obey your parents. Sometimes you feel like, why should I have to obey my parents or my, or my teachers? But remember, God came down and obeyed his own laws. That's a much greater thing. The universal lawgiver became obedient to his own laws for the sake of others. God, who originally made that agreement with our ancestor Adam in the Garden of Eden, which we call the, the covenant of works, which promised life and heaven for obedience, and death and hell for disobedience. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. This God now entered into the wreckage left by the first Adam as the second Adam, the founder of a new humanity, to keep covenant with God, to obtain the promises for his people, 
to obey so that we could receive the merits and the rewards of his obedience for all who believe on him. Since the first man had broken God's covenant, disobeyed his law, brought death upon himself and his offspring, those he represented, God entered humanity as one of us to keep covenant with God, to obey the law for us, and to bring life to those he represented. Romans 5.19 says, For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's all of us. That's how we're born into this world So by the one man's obedience, by Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He who possessed all righteousness became obedient to merit a righteousness for us who had none, who only possessed our own wickedness and sinfulness and rebellion. This obedience was Jesus' entire life. It wasn't just his death on the cross. Verse 8 doesn't say that he became obedient in death, but he became obedient to the point of death. His obedience was throughout his life, 33 years of perfect law-keeping, leading up to and culminating in the greatest expression of that obedience in his death on the cross. God's law had said, do this and live, but disobey and die. Jesus did it for us. And because we disobeyed, he died. And he did it for us that we might live. He took the punishment we'd earned to the point of death and gives us the reward he'd earned by his 33 years of perfect obedience to the point of death. And as the death of Christ is mentioned, Paul lingers on that for a moment longer. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That form of death, dying on a cross, was so bad, it was so horrific, so shameful, and especially in an honor-shame society, like the Roman Empire, that it was almost unmentionable. One Bible scholar makes the point that in Roman society, crucifixion was almost too dirty a word to mention in honorable society. It was like a curse word. It was a form of death beneath the dignity of Roman citizens. You know, Roman citizens could be executed for their crimes, but not by persecution, or not by, not by crucifixion. That was, that was for lesser people. For, for slaves, for those who, who were traitors to Rome, those who rebelled against Rome. This was a form of death reserved for the worst of the worst. And the emphasis here in mentioning this is, is on how low the Most High God was willing to go in his service. His sacrificial servitude knew no limits, even to take crucifixion for us even to take hell itself for us in bearing the wrath of God that we deserved as he died on the cross. As he prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As we thought about back when we were studying Matthew, what was that cup? That wasn't just the pain of getting nails 
driven through your hands and wearing a crown of thorns. That was, that was part of it, but there was more suffering than that, more than just the physical pain of the cross. Jesus endured the equivalent of hell, multiplied by as many times as many, as many people who will ever be saved by virtue of his sacrifice. And yet he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For our sakes, he died. For our sinful selves, our hell-deserving selves, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is, this is how we can have forgiveness of sins, justified before God, declared worthy of eternal life. Even though in and of ourselves, we could never do enough good to be, to be worthy of going to heaven. We can receive a righteousness from God as a gift because Jesus earned it for us. Eternal fellowship with a holy God in spite of everything we've done or failed to do, in spite of our sin, justified by faith on the basis of Jesus' obedience. Just as we say, Lord, I believe. Forgive me of my sin. Pardon my transgressions. I know I deserve hell. Maybe I don't even know how much I deserve it, but I know that I need your righteousness if I'm ever to go to heaven. I know that I need your death on the cross and that nothing other than that will pay for my sin. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, you will be saved. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's the gift of God, eternal life, not something that we earn. The wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. But the gift of God, not the wages of God, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what about you this morning? If you're listening to this, are you trying to blaze your own way to heaven, your own trail, to pave your own path by your own right living? That's unbelief. That's rejection of God's way of salvation. That's a dead-end street that will lead you to the dead end of hell. But if you come in the way of Jesus, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, this way you will be saved. So do you believe on Jesus? Do you agree with him about your sin, your unworthiness, your wickedness? But do you also believe what he says when he says, come to me. I know what a sinner you are, but come to me, and though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be washed away by my blood. If you have any questions about this, if you're not sure whether you have peace with God, I would plead with you this morning, don't put that off. You can know that you have eternal life. This is, this is what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that we might hope or, or guess or keep our fingers crossed that when we get there, we'll have eternal life, but that we may know that we have eternal life, the book of 1 John says. So this is the gospel. This is, this is how we're saved, by Christ's death. But as I, as I mentioned earlier, in this passage, 
Jesus' humility, his sacrificial servitude, is being presented as an example to us to follow. And we need to be really careful here. Jesus, Jesus' life is an example to us, but it's not just an example. If Jesus only came to show us how to live, we'd all be doomed and damned because we've already failed. Jesus came to live a perfect life for us, to pay for our sin. He's the basis of our justification, of our, of our right standing with God. But that's not all Jesus is. He's not, he's not just uh, our, the basis of our justification. He's also the pattern for our sanctification. Having come to Jesus, and received his pardon and his forgiveness, now we can look to him as an example and see like, if, I, if I've been forgiven by God, if I've been saved by this gospel, how can I live? How does God want me to live in this, in this short time that he's, he's left me here on this earth? How can I honor God with my life out of gratitude for all he's done for me? And that's when the Lord says, well, keep looking to your Savior. Keep trusting him. And if you want to see what, what the life looks like that the Holy Spirit is working in you, look to Jesus's, Jesus was the perfect example of obedience. Look to his humility. Look to his love. He is our pattern. So he's the basis of our justification. He's the reason we're saved. And he's also the example to follow once we've been saved for our sanctification. Well, we've considered Christ's supreme dignity, we've considered his active humiliation, but let's think thirdly about Christ's resulting exaltation. Christ's resulting exaltation in verses 9 through 11. In verse 9, we read that, therefore, God has highly exalted him. So this is, this is the result of what Jesus did. Everything up to this point has been active. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's humbling himself. He's taking the form of a servant. But now something's being done to Jesus by God the Father. He's highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. He who lowered himself to honor the Father and to save others has now been lifted up and honored by the Father. Just as Jesus prayed in John 17 before his death, Father, glorify me as I have glorified you. So from this exalted place where Jesus has been, he's been risen from the dead, he's been taken up into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, from this exalted place, Christ will return one day and all things will be completely and finally subjugated to his rule and reign. His kingdom, inaugurated in his first coming, will come in its completeness and its fullness on earth as it is in heaven at his second coming. His exaltation will reach the pinnacle, the, the, that high point in which every knee will be forced to bow before him. Every tongue will confess. This is, verse 10 is a picture of cosmic tribute, universal homage being paid to the triumphant King of kings and Lord of lords. Many multitudes have saluted 
mighty dictators and kings, you know, some, some more honorable, some less honorable. You know, think of all the crowds that saluted Hitler at, at Nuremberg. Think of the masses of people that have paid tribute and honor to the Caesars of Rome. But as many people as these mere mortals, these, these sinful human beings have gotten to, have, have convinced to honor them, and to bow before them, Jesus, when he comes back, every knee will bow. Not just people in a certain part of the world, but every single person that is alive and every person that has lived. Perhaps that's what meant, what's meant by uh, under the earth, or perhaps that's referring to the fallen angels. The, the point, though, in, in this language that says every knee will bow in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, it's just saying that universally, Christ will be honored. He, homage will be paid to him. No one will be able to resist his will on that day. Every, everyone will bow. Even Satan himself, in dread and terror, as he's about to be sentenced to hell, will have to bow and surrender to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. So the exaltation of Christ is, is meant to provide encouragement to us. And, and by the way, just before moving on from this, this cosmic tribute to one, this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 45 in which uh, Yahweh God had spoken those words of himself. And uh, so this is a clear identification that, that this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, this, the, the God who took on flesh and dwelt among us is the same God that spoke in the Old Testament, that spoke to Moses from the burning bush, that created the world, that parted the Red Sea. This is the same God, which, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses would deny that Jesus is Yahweh God. They believe he's a created being. So, hey, use Philippians 2 when you're talking to uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Philippians 2, and then if you want to write down that text, it's Isaiah 45, 23. That, that prophesies of this. It's, it's God, uh, Yahweh, God speaking, Jehovah God speaking. So we can trust that God will lift up in his timing according to his purpose those who humble themselves. So even in, even in Christ's exaltation, this reminds us of passages that, that Jesus gave us, promises that he gave us, such as Matthew 23, 12. Jesus promised us that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So because of this, we have motivation for sacrificial service pointing back because of what Jesus has already done for us you know, if this is what he calls us to, the one that died for me, then so be it, whatever you say, Lord. But we also have motivation as we look forward that, that as I make these sacrifices for others, as I forego certain comforts and, and, and privileges and, and joys of this life that, that people chase after and live for, as I, 
as I, as I surrender those things, as I lay them down in order to serve Christ, God will richly reward anything that I've lost for his sake. He will lift me up in his timing. Humble yourselves under the Lord. He will exalt you. Those that come to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So Christian, if you're struggling to put others first, to seek the interests of others instead of just your own, you'll find strength as you look back to the cross where Jesus died and as you look forward to the crown that is awaiting you in heaven where this king, the king of kings and lord of lords, will himself honor you. Well done, good and faithful servants. On that day, everyone will give honor to Jesus. Those who, like, like we do this morning, gladly recognize him as, as king, and those who have been overcome by his almighty power and bow in shame before him on that day. For some, that it will be a day, day of terror and shame, but for those of us who have loved his appearing, that day is our blessed hope. And even now, we seek to honor him. So where will you be on that day? Where will you stand? How will you receive Jesus? Well, we've considered what the Most High has done for our salvation. We've meditated on his sacrificial servitude, voluntary, willing, by which we've been saved, his supreme dignity, his active humiliation, the glory that followed. And so brothers and sisters, in closing, my encouragement to you is continue to consider Christ. Continue looking to Christ. See his worthiness. See the beauty of what he's done for you and pray for strength to stop at nothing, to see this Christ honored in your life here in this world, in your relationships, in your marriage, whether that means sacrificing your time, sacrificing your comfort, your dreams. What's my time? What is my time if it can't be devoted to this most worthy cause? What are my resources but, but wasted if they can't be devoted to the cause of bringing glory to Christ? What is my comfort when Christ has endured my hell for me and is preparing a place of rest for me? This life, brothers and sisters, will soon be over. This is a short little blip, a short little moment that we have. Let's make the most of it. Let's work while it's day. Let us live worthy of the gospel now by following Christ's example of sacrificial servitude towards your church family, uh, in your, towards your spouse, towards your neighbors, towards your enemies. Loving, joyful, sacrificial servitude after the pattern of Christ. And in this way, we'll preserve the unity that is fitting among sin-pardoned, blood-bought citizens of the heavenly kingdom as together we strive for this goal, to honor him with our lives, the one who took on mortality and gave his life for us. Let's pray.
Lord God, help us, we pray. May we count it more blessed to give than to receive because when we're doing that, we're most like our Savior. We're most like Christ. We're bringing the most glory and honor to Him. And may that be our greatest desire. Lord, help us strengthen our faith so that we may see this, so that we may see Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.